Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Winfrey, and what you're about to listen to is an old episode of a podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode debuted on July 3rd of 2013. It's notable in that, for a couple of reasons. One, it became the first in what wound up being like three different podcasts I did in some variety talking about Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) Uh, This one is focused on uh, Hannibal Lecter. I did one on the television show Hannibal, which I still dearly miss. And I forget what the other one was. Uh, You'll have to forgive me. I just can't remember off the top of my head. But there were three different times I wound up talking about that character in some iteration. Uh, Which should speak to... One, it speaks to maybe something uh, a little bit unsavory about my character. (laughs) But uh, what a truly compelling character that uh, Thomas Harris wound up creating with that, uh, with Dr. Lecter. So, uh, it is also notable, this was my first solo podcast. Uh, all the other previous episodes of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, I'd had a guest of some variety. This one was just me talking to myself for the duration. <laughs> so, I, tr- I hope you'll bear with past me as he kind of goes through that, but it wound up being one of my more popular episodes for a while, so take that for whatever it's worth. Uh, as usual, I would like to thank you for any support that you can give the podcast, be that just in the form of a like, comment, subscription, star rating, written review, or a share on whatever social media platform you happen to prefer using. That all helps a great deal. What also helps, if you've done all that or don't want to do any of that, you can support our sponsors who will also help you out with some great products. First up, Amazon Music. Amazon Music uh, Unlimited, just to be more specific. That particular service gives you access to over 70 million individual songs, podcasts, and other audio files. Uh, If you would like to get uh, ad-free, completely ad-free when you have the unlimited option, if that seems like something you'd be interested in, and really, why wouldn't you, uh, go to getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network or click the, de- uh, the link in the description below and you can have 30 days of that service free of charge. When that 30 days is up, you get to decide. Do you want to continue and start paying for it or do you want to not? That's entirely up to you, but you will have had a wonderful 30 days to experience the product and all that comes with it. Also supporting the podcast is Grammarly for you listeners of the W2M Network. Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network to download Grammarly for free. There is a link in the description below as well if you don't want to type anything out into your search bar. I understand entirely if you don't. All right, with that out of the way, thank you all very much again for listening. I will throw it now to my past self, circa 2013, for a discussion about the good doctor himself, Hannibal Lecter. Enjoy the show.
When the devil is too busy and that's a bit too much. They call on me by name, you see, for my special touch. To the gentleman, I'm his fortune. To the lady, I'm surprised. But call me by any name, any way, it's all the same. I'm the fly in your suit, I'm the test in your shoe, I'm the even in your bed, I'm the bump on every head, I'm the pill on which you slip, I'm the hit in every head, I'm the thorn in your side, makes you wiggle and ride. You know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a robe. A well-scrubbed, hustling robe with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bond, but you're not more than one generation from poor wire trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. Where's your father to your coal mine, to his stinkable land? You know how quickly the boys found you, all those tedious, sticky fumblings in the backseats of cars, while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the empathy You see a lot, Doc? Indeed he does. Hello. Welcome to Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. I am your host. Mr. Robert Winfrey, and I hope you're all having a wonderful 4th of July weekend. I am. Re- this is being recorded on July 3rd, so anyone in the States, tomorrow, the 4th of July, pretty good celebration. Fireworks, barbecue, friends, for those of you who imbibe a little bit, I'm sure there's more than a bit of alcohol involved, and I'm pretty sure a good time will generally be had by all. If you live somewhere outside of the United States, I'm sure you all have holidays coming up in the near future. Summer's a great time for them, and most governments try to have at least one over these summer months. Well, as you may have guessed from the introduction there, this on this particular edition of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, we're talking about one of the most iconic villains of all time, one of my personal favorites, the good doctor himself, Hannibal Lecter. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We're here to dissect the man who has no qualms about eating. Now, normally for these shows, I have a guest. I have had quite a few. I've enjoyed every one of them. And I have someone to talk with, to share ideas with, to kind of bounce back and forth. Not so much this time. Uh, No one had the time. No one had the inclination, I suppose. So you just get me. I've got a couple of sound clips to hopefully help break up some of the monotony of listening to my voice. And we'll get to those. But it is just me, so for the next 55 minutes and change, it's just us talking about Hannibal Lecter and all his various forms across all the different meetings. Now, since we're starting with Hannibal, I suppose I should start with how I got introduced to the character. Well, I got introduced to it somewhat by accident in kind of an odd, in kind of a funny story. Um, I was staying at a friend's house round about, I was in, I was in high school, maybe junior high at the time, so... 14 to 16, somewhere in that age group, I can't remember exactly, and it was Halloween. 
wonderful time of year. I was at a friend's house, and we were cruising through the channels looking for a movie to watch, as teenagers in general are wont to do. Well, my friend's father decided, stumbled, came upon Silence of the Lambs partway through and decided to watch it. So my first, and my first exposure to the movie was one of the rather clinical sequences in the FBI. I forget exactly where it was within the film. But I was confused as to why this would be considered a scary movie. I was assured by my friend's father that, no, it's a scary movie, trust me. And I watched the vast majority of that particular film. I don't, like I said, I don't remember exactly where I came in, but it was, it was in the beginning prior to her first meeting with Hannibal Lecter. And I wound up leaving to go home just after he escaped from his particular confinement. One of the better, and, you know, great sequences all the way around. But my, so my first exposure, I was too young to understand every, everything about that particular character. I still loved the movie. I was still, you know, scared and awed by it, so. There is still that. It just wasn't until many years later that I actually got around to seeing the film unedited. And strangely enough, that movie doesn't lose a whole lot going from television, going from film to television. It takes very little to edit it down for television. But a year or so later, I got into the books. I read them in sequential order, so I started with Red Dragon, moved on to Silence of the Lambs, of course Hannibal, Hannibal Rising, which I actually enjoyed the book, the movie, not so much, but we're going to get to that in a little bit. So, that's kind of my introduction. I was introduced on the Anthony Hopkins version, as I'm sure most of you were. That is the iconic portrayal, but not the only one, which is kind of what inspired me to do this particular podcast. The NBC series Hannibal wrapped up its first season last week, with Mads Mikkelsen doing what I feel is a very good job portraying Hannibal Lecter in a slightly different light. I've enjoyed that movie, I've enjoyed that television series so far, and I look forward to seeing if they're able to bring that same level of quality to next season. But since we're talking, but we're not here to talk about just the television show, just the movies, just the actors. We're here to talk about the character as well as the actor. And the character first appears in the novel Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, and is, it's odd, in a strange twist, Hannibal Lecter is very rarely the focus uh, he's not the focus of those first two books. The focus is on the FBI agents, uh, Will Graham and Clarice Starling, respectively, from Red Dragon to Silence of the Lambs, and their attempt to catch serial killers. Uh, in Red Dragon, it is the character, Francis Dollar Hyde, known as the Red Dragon, or the Tooth Fairy, depending on how far you are in the book. And Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. But he is portrayed, when we first meet him, he's actually already been captured by Will Graham, which, and... That particular story of how that came about has been tweaked a little bit over the years and over the various, over the different incarnations of the story in various mediums. But he's been captured by Will Graham, and Will comes to seek his help when looking, when trying to catch Francis Dollarhide, known as the Tooth Fairy at the time, a name he finds highly divisive, and it annoys him so much that it contributes to his to his eventual murder of Freddie Lowndes. Oh, and in case someone is not aware, yes, there, I, I should have said there will be spoilers if you're not familiar with this villain in the series, so I apologize if I in, unintentionally spoiled something there. If you're not familiar, there will be spoilers. Fair warning. The first film adaptation that brought Hannibal Lecter to the big screen was actually not Silence of the Lambs, which had Anthony Hopkins. 
It was a movie a couple of years earlier done by Michael Mann called Manhunter and had the Scottish actor Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter, spelled differently for some legal purpose. That particular version is actually not bad. He retains his Scottish accent, which provides a slightly different twist on it, especially if you're familiar with all of the kind of mythology that goes on within the Silence of the Lambs universe. But that movie suffers from kind of being a Michael Mann movie, the impression that I got, and that's a lot of style, a lot of neat visuals. The substance isn't necessarily as all the way there, and basically as you're watching that, you know you're watching a Michael Mann movie. And actually, that movie, it has some following. It's not a horrible movie. It's just I don't feel especially... And actually, the way that movie performed poorly at the box office and with critics upon its release, it's gained a bit of a cult following by contemporary standards. But... That actually almost caused the movie, sil- which was being, it, which was, I believe, in pre-production at the time, going towards filming uh, *Silence of the Lambs*, directed by Jonathan Demme, which we will get into in a bit. But Thomas Harris followed up *Red Dragon* with the novel *Silence of the Lambs*, which became a huge bestseller. It was a very popular book. It is a very great read. If anyone, if you ever need a book to read and you don't mind dealing with kind of the subject matter that goes on within that then I would highly recommend reading the book if you haven't already. It is, it's very good. But again, Hannibal Lecter is not the focus. He's certainly there. He's certainly important. But in terms of the amount of, the amount of material devoted to him, it's, a fair amount more is devoted to the, ev- the evidence collecting, the procedures, and the FBI looking for Buffalo Bill, as well as some stuff done within the head of Buffalo Bill. And Thomas Harris is a painstaking researcher and a fairly detailed writer, so it's not so again naturally some material had to be cut for the film, but it's a very good book, and I recommend you guys read it from the novel standpoint that was followed up with Hannibal, which shifted the focus a lot more towards the character of Hannibal Lecter and i I don't know what it is, but that particular novel, maybe it's the ending in which he kind of through combination of drugs, therapy, and hypnosis, kind of convinces Clarice to fall in love with him, and they run off together, which was poorly received depending on which circles you're in. I know my stepmother threw the book across the room when she got to that part and refused to read it for a while. Much the same reaction that my ne- that my younger brother had when he read The Red Wedding within the Game of Thrones universe. He threw the book across the room and refused to read it for a few weeks which was actually the same reaction a lot of people had when they got around to airing the episode of the Game of Thrones series that has the Red Wedding in it. Interesting to watch kind of people have the same reaction that a lot of my friends did upon reading it. But that's neither here nor there. He And the last novel that came out dealing with Hannibal Lecter was written kind of at the insistence of the studio. It's called Hannibal Rising, and it deals with Hannibal before we meet him in the in Red Dragon. It deals with his childhood and the events that led him to being a serial killer, his first kills. Uh, the movie Hannibal Rising I don't feel is especially good. It has issues, and I do want to get into those again in a little bit here. But the book I actually enjoyed a great deal. So if any of you have just seen the movie and with all of its many, many flaws. If you haven't read the book, I would encourage you to do so, because it's not actually that bad. But after Manhunter, as far as the history of the character goes, after Manhunter kind of flopped, 
terms of financials, and since that's the only thing Hollywood cares about, that's kind of the basis I'm using. It kind of, it flopped pretty hard, and that somewhat endangered the production of Silence of the Lambs, or at least, again, when you get into that, you're getting into whose story you're listening to in particular, but it didn't do well, and there was some concern about the movie itself being able to go forward and being successful, whether or not it could actually make money, which, again, in Hollywood is a big deal, whether or not you can turn profit is... I understand that. They make movies to make money. They don't make them just because they can. But we got... But when the film rights for the book Silence of the Lamb were auctioned off... Well, bought. They weren't auctioned off. They were bought by initially Gene Hackman, who was set to not only play Dr. Lecter, but also to direct the the movie. Uh, that wound up falling through for, I believe his daughter convinced him that the material was too dark and he wound up backing out of the project. And the whole story behind how that movie came about is actually quite interesting. And you and if I do a podcast specifically on a movie, it will be on Silence of the Lambs at some point, and I can go into more detail about that. But the casting of Dr. Lecter was really interesting process because it seemed... A lot of people wanted to do the role. Uh, Brian Cox had done it for Manhunter. There were actually quite a few people who auditioned for it in that film as well because the character is so interesting. But in terms of Silence of the Lambs, they had a lot of very well-thought-of A-list actors that wanted to do it. I know the studio was actually pushing quite hard for Robert Robert Duvall to do it. Uh, Robert De Niro had expressed interest. Dustin Hoffman wanted to had read for it. Uh, Sean Connery was approached. Jack Nicholson was approached about it. Just a ton of really talented, big-name actors at the time. And, I, you know, those are all quality actors, and I have to imagine that they all would have brought something to the role of Hannibal, but thank heavens that the director stuck with his guns and got Anthony Hopkins to come out and do it, because I don't think you could have cast a better person at that time in that role as Hannibal Lecter, and it's amazing to me that for a man, for a character and a performance that had a su- less than, I believe it was less than 10 minutes of total screen time, Hannibal Lecter was on the screen. He was able to just capture everyone's attention. Everyone, you know, When he's on screen, you're looking at him and listening to what he says and his interactions with Whoever he's in there with at the moment, whether he's looking down and mocking Frederick Chilton, he should have done more often, or he's talking with Clarice Starling, it's an incredibly magnetic performance by Hopkins, and it was, and it there's a reason it set the standard for so many villains throughout. I mean, cinematic history since then, he's regarded as one of the best for a very good reason, and a lot of that has to do not only with how he's written, but how Anthony Hopkins portrayed him. And, sorry, I'm going to look over my notes here. Okay. Sorry, I had kind of a sequence in mind for this, and I script a little bit there. My fault. But Hannibal Lecter remained, he always has been just this extraordinarily charismatic and captivating presence in the novels on film, big screen or small screen. He's so very well developed as a character in a lot of ways and in other ways he until Hannibal Rising was released both in novel and uh film form not there were elements of his backstory and who he was that were not known they were kind of shrouded in mystery and it enhanced his character very well you didn't necessarily know where he came from there was never there was 
for a long time, there was no clear reason what had caused him to wind up like he did. And he is, for want of a better phrase, they refer to him in the novel as a pure sociopath, because psychopath is actually not the term you want to use to describe someone from a clinical standpoint, though they use it in the movie, and it plays. I understand that the word at that time played better than sociopath. But it's made very clear in the novels that he's categorized as a sociopath because they don't actually have a category for what he is. He's... If, for those of you who have read the book, he is described in these, in some circumstances, these very odd kind of existential, not existential, I apologize, but these, these very odd kind of elemental ways. I mean, one of the great lines from the book is kind of their introduction to him. He's sitting, I can't remember the quote off the, I can't remember the entire quote off the top of my head, but he's sitting with his fingers steepled under his chin and behind his eyes are endless night. And it's there are quite a few descriptions like that. And Thomas Harris created him in a very memorable fashion as well. There's a f- there's a, a few elements that they wound up leaving out of the subsequent films because they would just be difficult uh, for various reasons. Um, he's uh, in the novels. He actually has a fully formed extra middle finger on his left hand that's fully functional, which is the rarest form of polydactyl. He actually has maroon-colored eyes which is a genetically recessive trait, but does crop up from time to time. He was, when you get into Hannibal Rising, he was born into the royal family of Latvia, or a royal family, not Beebley, but his, uh, and his world kind of fell apart at a young age when the Nazis invaded, which happened to a lot of people across Europe. That was not a good time to be European, especially mainland Europe. England managed to hold out, but everybody else pretty much... They kind of, they blitzkrieged them into submission. And during, he was irreparably traumatized during that particular winter. I forget which year it was specifically, but it was not a good one. A very cold one. There were some soldiers who had uh, who had deserted. They were holding up with him and his sister. They ran out of food. And they wound up killing and eating his baby sister. And that whole sequence of events irreparably traumatized the poor kid. He wasn't very old at the time. Uh, I haven't read the book in a while. I want to say he was not ten. He was like I want to say between six and eight, though I could be wrong on. That. Feel free to correct me in you know, comments or just to yourself. Feel free to refer to me as he winds. Uh, I don't want to go too much into just a biography of the character here, but he winds up with his uncle for a bit in France. His uncle is killed, leaving him with his aunt, uh, a Japanese woman by the name of Lady Murasaki. Again, I'm going off of memory here, so bear with me if I'm off on elements of this. He exacts revenge on the peop- on the soldiers who killed his sister and helped him. He ate her, too, is kind of the big reveal towards the end of that story. He kills all of them. The public is then sympathetic towards him because he killed a bunch of war criminals. They demand his release. He leaves France, goes to study medicine at Johns Hopkins University, and that's kind of where we pick up where he goes into uh, psychiatry as well as as well as physical medicine. It gets a little blurry there in terms of his personal history, but there's no doubt that he kept killing and eating people while he was there. Eventually, he's caught by Will Graham and imprisoned, and that's where we pick up in Red Dragon from the chronology stand. To me, what makes Hannibal Lecter so fascinating is there's a couple of things. First of all, his intellect. This is a very, very intelligent man. He is he excels at pushing buttons, at perceiving weaknesses. He's always watching 
He's always observing. He was described by um, Ted Talley, who wrote the screenplay for Silence of the Lambs, as oh, how did he? As like the Sherlock Holmes of serial killers. He's a thinking machine. He is always thinking. He is always analyzing. He is always making notes in his head. And that that particular description fits him very well because that particular sound clip I played at the beginning of this podcast is what he is his. Res- is what he says to dissect Clarice Starling after seeing her for all of a few minutes. And to just completely see through someone like that is, it's not something that most people can do. It's something that he can do. But it's not just his, his intellect is a huge factor in that. He's a very interesting character because he's not, forgive the phrase, he's not your garden variety psychopath. And again, I know psychopath's not the correct word there, but... A lot of serial killers like that, you, you know, they leave evidence, they follow patterns. I mean, if you're a fan of the show, of the TV show Criminal Minds, you know, you, you know, you're familiar with, you know, patterns and and how you can analyze behavior. And I know there's some controversy around that among scientific circles, but they all kind of fall into these patterns, into these categories. And here's someone, here's a character who doesn't fit any of them. I mean. Yes, he's a serial killer, and yes, you know there are cannibalistic aspects to it, and you can argue, but none of it, none of his, none of the kind of accepted groups and theories and classifications of serial killers and their ilk seem to really fit him all that well. And we as people tend to be fascinated in by what we can't explain, and we're also horrified by it. But that contributes to a part of him being scary is there isn't really a whole lot of you know, pathology from a psychological standpoint that you can exploit to your advantage when you're around. There's just you know, the, some of the scariest things in the world are the things that you can't control and you can't influence. And a man who, for whatever reason, in his twisted logical way, has decided that he's going to kill you and eat, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's terribly scary. The other thing that I found, a lot of people I think found really kind of terrifying about Hannibal Lecter is that he's just a person. There's no, there's nothing supernatural about him as you get with other slashers and and especially at the time the uh, the first Silence of the Lambs movie came out in 91 February of 91 and at the time if you listen to the uh, Long Road to Ruin series that I, I guest spotted on their discussion of the Scream franchise and the 90s were not a good year for horror uh, they weren't, and I know that the debate between about how to classify Silence of the Lambs remains ongoing. But I feel that the, that there is a strong argument that can be made that it's a horror movie, and I can I somewhat classify it there. But the '90s were not a good year for horror movies. You had oh, let me see if I can remember this. You had Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. You had oh, where were we in how in Friday the Thirteenth? I want to say by the ni- by the early 90s we were at like Jason Goes to Hell, which I believe comes after Jason Takes Manhattan. I haven't seen the order of them, but the ba- we were in the pits as far as the Friday the 13th go. We had Halloween Five, The Curse of Michael Myers, and if any of which is so bad it slipped into public domain. I- I'm pretty sure. You know, there's just a lot of bad horror movies, but they all focused on these kind of supernatural killers. I mean, even some of the other, you know, 
a couple of my personal favorite horror movies came out of the 90s. You had Army of Darkness come out, you had Tremors come out, and again, these are... But you're still looking at things that are supernatural, or they're monster movies. They're not necessarily real. And here you have someone who is utterly terrifying and could be real. I mean, it's not a huge stretch of the imagination to see Dr. Lecter in the real world, to see someone like that actually out there going around, shopping for groceries, cooking expensive foods, enjoying opera, and if he, if you happen to aggravate him in some way, he's going to kill you and eat you and probably serve you to, at, and serve parts of you at a dinner party. That type of thing is completely rational. It's completely real. It is, and that notion that no, this can actually happen, and in many, and in some cases does. It's scary. It's an absolutely terrifying notion. And uh, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought there, which happens. But the whole care and. One of the things that I feel works as the series progresses, uh, again, the novel Hannibal, as well as the movie, there are some issues that I have with both of those, different ones respectively, but they exist. But some of the things that I enjoyed about it, as far as the novel goes, were the little glimpses, kind of the flashbacks to Lecter's childhood. And even in Hannibal Rising, knowing his backstory, knowing kind of the events that had helped conspire to create Hannibal Lecter did not in any way diminish him. The performance of Gaspard Ulliel, yeah, that hurt, that hurt, but the novel, which is kind of what I'm going off of here, does not diminish Hannibal Lecter because you know where he comes from. And that, in terms of novel or movie monsters, for want of a better phrase, knowing their motivations, knowing their backstory, when you've already established them as a menace and a threat, suddenly, you know, kind of making them human or explaining them, it can go badly, just in terms of being awful, like some of the early Halloween, like Halloween 4 and 5, where you try to explain a way how, you try to explain how Michael Myers is the way he is. It can just be bad, or it can be torn apart by fans and some critics, like Rob Zombie's Halloween remake, which is highly divisive, but attempts to explain why Michael Myers is the way he is in terms of he feels the need to kill people. And it can be, it can go badly. Go badly because the menace goes away when you know things about them in a lot of ways. And I don't feel it did with Hannibal the way it was handled. Thomas Harris is to be commended for that aspect of those two books. Again, the movies, eh, not so much. And since... We're inevitably going to talk about the movies. I talked a little bit about Silence of the Lambs, which was the big the big one. It remains, objectively speaking, the best, I think. It still holds up as a film after you know, it came out in 91, so it's still, but it still holds up as a film. We actually, those of us who are fans of Anthony Hopkins, owe that film a great debt because when Anthony Hopkins was first approached sort about that part, he had kind of given up Hollywood. He had moved back to London. He was going to be on the theater. Just gonna, he kind of figured Hollywood's not for me. I'll be a stage performer, you know, and that's kind of my niche. I'm not necessarily meant to be here. And he was gonna be done. And thank heavens that again that Jonathan Demme was able to secure him for the part of Hannibal Lecter because the success of that movie, both financially, critically, you know, just the movie's a success was what led to Anthony Hopkins still being around in Hollywood making movies all these years later and we would have missed a lot had he had that not had that particular 
sequence not come to fruition, we wouldn't have had him in all of the in so many other great movies. I mean, my first exposure to Anthony Hopkins was actually not in the form of Hannibal Lecter. It was in the form of The Mask of Zorro, where he plays, um, oh, I forget his first. I know his last name is De La Vega, but I can't remember the But he plays the first Zorro, and if you've seen the movie, you know what I mean. To see him, and I, that was my first real exposure to Anthony Hopkins, was, oddly enough, kind of as an action star. That is an action movie, and he doesn't, I mean, he's not, you know, Antonio Banderas in that movie doing all of his own stunts and every th- type of thing and whatnot, but he is a very important part of that film as a whole, and... I think his the fact that he's not in it at all is one of the things that hurts the sequel in addition to a poorly thought-out script. But Anthony Hopkins has played Hannibal Lecter in Silence. He returned for the movie Hannibal. Uh, he was pretty much the only person who returned for their role from that movie. Uh, the part of Jack Crawford wound up being written out. Julianne Moore took over as Clarice Starling. Uh, actually, Paul Krendler, played by Ray Liotta in Hannibal, actually is, has a bigger role in the Silence of the Lambs novel, but he has a cameo appearance in Silence of the Lambs, and it's not Ray Liotta in Silence. I think it's him and, I believe, the actor who played Barney, guard over Lecter, Cellblock, comes back. But and then again, And Anthony Hopkins returned again for the prequel Red Dragon, and they got back Anthony Held, too, to play Chilton in that one. Both of which were good things. Um, you know, I, I'm going to talk about the television show series Hannibal, and they got a decent guy to play Chilton in that particular. He's been in a couple of episodes, and it's just just not the same. And that's not always a bad thing, but Anthony Hild managed to capture the ability of just being so instantly unlikable in those movies that it would have been hard for anybody to kind of step in and do it. Which is one of the things that since I want. I want to talk about the television show now for a bit. I have to praise Mads Mikkelsen for his portrayal of Dr. Lecter because he managed to do it without it seeming like he's up there in front of a camera impersonating Anthony Hopkins playing him. It's so important. It's a credit to him and to the writing and the directing of that show that it still feels like Hannibal Lecter without it being you know, without it being a knockoff, without it being him playing Anthony Hopkins, who's playing Hannibal Lecter, which is a very easy thing to do when you're taking over especially such an iconic and successful role. I mean, when NBC decided they were going to launch a a United States version of The Office, which had already been a running series in the UK with Ricky Gervais in the the office manager role, the Michael Scott role. I haven't seen much of the UK version, so forgive me if I forget the names. But when people were auditioning for the role of Michael Scott, a bunch of them, and some of them admitted, I believe Rain Wilson admitted, that his Michael Scott audition was nothing but a terrible 10-minute Ricky Gervais impression. And with anything that successful, especially something like Hannibal Lecter that has been done so very, very well by Anthony Hopkins and has become a cultural icon. I mean, he's everyone knows Hannibal Lecter. And for him to be able to go out there and perform and have it still, that his version of Hannibal, it still feels like Hannibal Lecter. It doesn't feel like, you know, a caricature or something like that, which was a big issue I had with Hannibal Rising. And I can't all, I can't completely blame Gaspard Ulliel, who they cast as Hannibal in Hannibal Rising, because he was a younger actor at the time. But that, his acting and maybe the way the character was written and had to be, the way that story had to be condensed for film as opposed to being a novel, it... It just didn't work. 
it didn't feel like Hannibal Lecter. It felt like watching him play Hannibal felt like he was trying to copy what he thought Anthony Hopkins would do as a young Hannibal, and it just it doesn't work. You know, and I never, when I watch Mads Mikkelsen play Hannibal, I never feel like he's trying to kind of emulate Anthony Hopkins. And again, that's a credit to everyone kind of involved with that, that it's able to be, it's still Hannibal. It's still, you still can feel that it's Hannibal Lecter. It's not Anthony Hopkins' Hannibal Lecter, but it's still the same character. It's still Hannibal Lecter. It's still the bad guy. And to be able to step into a role like that and still be able to command it and still be able to make it believable and not derivative in any way, it deserves a lot of praise. I also, and one of the things that goes into that, in this instance, as far as the television series go, we're looking at Hannibal Lecter before he's caught. So it's kind of Hannibal acting, pretending to be normal, pretending to fit in with everyone else, which he does an admirable job of. As far you know, he gets away with quite a few murders, as far as you know the logbooks are concerned. But his therapist, played by Gillian Anderson, in one of their, I believe, her first, the first time we see her and Hannibal sit down together, she comments that he wears a man suit, which of course is kind of a veiled, very poorly veiled reference to Buffalo Bill trying to make a woman's suit in Silence of the Lambs. If you're familiar with the mythology of with the books and the movies and everything, there are a lot of fun little jabs and instances that you can find in the television, in the first series of the television show. Although, I'm disappointed. They have not yet found the census taker, and I'm waiting for it because I have the clip here. I would be remiss if I didn't play it. It's the famous, it's the famous Hannibal Lecter line, one of the most famous. And I want them to find a census taker for one of the for one of his victims, hopefully in the upcoming season. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. He actually improvised uh, that last bit there, the slurping. But you get a lot of fun little references like that in the television show. And I, I do want the I do want the poor census taker to try and test Mads Mikkelsen's Hannibal Lecter. But you, but the point I was making there is the version of Hannibal that we see Anthony Hopkins play is one that has already been caught. The world knows he's a monster. And the version that Mads Mikkelsen is playing has not been caught. He's still killing people. He's still out there. He's still getting away with it, and he has to blend in. So you get these very small glimpses behind the man suit behind the facade to see you know the real Hannibal Lecter and there's a couple of points as far as that goes in the television show and if you love bad guys if you love villains like I do there are these wonderful little moments that you can just kind of see okay that's Hannibal Lecter the first one for me uh, one of them one of the first ones not the big one I feel but one of the first ones is in the first episode, when he calls the serial killer that he and Will Graham are pursuing to let him know that they're coming just because he wants to see what the, what he'll do. It's a very Hannibal thing to do, but it comes in such a small moment that it's difficult to kind of get the sense of Lecter. And the one that got me, that kind of got me to look there and go, yes, that's Hannibal Lecter, was... I couldn't... I don't think I can pronounce the name of it... Uh, for those of you who don't know, all of the episodes of the first season are named after a part of French, are named after a, a meal. They're named after parts of French cuisine. And 
in this particular one, the basic premise of the episode is a serial killer who's already in custody. It was not a serial. It might have been a serial killer. I forget exactly. I haven't seen that episode in a while. Played by Eddie is has been convinced subtly by Dr. Chilton that he is the Chesapeake Ripper, which is actually Hannibal Lecter. But and of course Hannibal Lecter being Hannibal Lecter he is not at all going to let someone who's already in prison, well in the Baltimore asylum for the or hospital for the criminally insane take credit for his work. So he begins to let pe- he, so he lets people know that no the Ripper is still out there cuz he is but the story also kind of revolves around Jack Crawford, who had sent a tra- an FBI trainee by the name of Miriam Lass, kind of mirroring Clarice Starling in some way, to do just some legwork on the case, to you know, run down some leads as far as the Chesapeake Ripper case is concerned. And she inadvertently kind of stumbles upon one of the victims having been treated at one point by Hannibal Lecter when he was, in, uh, when he was assisting in an ER doing his, as a doctor. Which is actually how Will Graham finds Hannibal Lecter in the novel writ. And she actually figures out that it's him the same way that he did, in, that Will Graham did in that particular story. She sees an illustration that he did of the medieval drawing Wound Man. And the wounds on that just happen to correspond exactly with the physical trauma to the last victim. And Hannibal comes up behind her and subdues her and eventually kills her. But. The moment that I kind of went, yes, there's Hannibal Lecter, was when you realize that he is the Chesapeake Ripper. It's not revealed until the end of that particular episode, but the final sequence is he's sitting down in, I believe it's his office in front of the fireplace with Jack Crawford, and they're having a glass of wine, and he asks him, he says, tell me about this trainee. As Jack is telling the story of this, we get the flashback that reveals it was actually Hannibal that killed her, and he... And in that last little bit, he's sitting there beside Jack Crawford, listening to him kind of talk about his guilt and this wonderful woman that, or this, you know, this trainee that he sent off and she was killed and he has all this guilt and she was, and he's just sitting there absorbing all of this and you can, and, and he's enjoying it because again, that's what he does. He kind of studies and he enjoys these things and right and as that particular episode ends, after all that's been revealed to us, he just, a very brief hint of a smile crosses his face before the episode ends. And for me, that was, you look at that sequence, and yes, that's Hannibal Lecter. He, it's, not, it's not the version that Anthony Hopkins did, but it is definitely still Hannibal Lecter. And thank heavens for everyone involved with that. And I know Mads Mikkelsen... Uh, I was impressed with his work when he was cast as Le Chivre in the Bond, in the latest Bond movie, not the latest Bond movie, but the first Daniel Craig Bond movie, he was cast as the primary villain. And I was very impressed with his, I was impressed with his work there, but uh, I have very much enjoyed his turn as Hannibal Lecter. I'm anxious to see where it goes. He adopted a lot of the traits that Anthony Hopkins had for Hannibal, not in the you know kind of obvious, you know, maybe like speech patterns or lines or kind of crazy-eyed looks. But when Anthony Hopkins was preparing for the role of Hannibal, one of the things that he has mentioned that he did was, I forget the specific species, but there's a species of big cat, of predatory cat, that their hunting method, one of them, is they stand impossibly still. They don't move, they don't even blink, and they wait for their prey to get to get extremely close to them, and then they pounce. And that's a trait that 
if you actually watch in Silence of the Lambs, that's a trait that Hannibal has. He's very still, and it's unsettling in a lot of ways. But he, he's very still. He does. I don't think we see him blink in that entire movie. I could be wrong. I don't recall seeing it. And he main, but he just maintains that kind of stillness. That that uh, you know, he mentioned the species of big cat. A lot of snakes have the same methodology. They just hold very, very still. And then they pounce at you at the last minute. And that's something that, that's a, that's a character trait that Mads Mikkelsen has kind of picked up on as far as that, his portrayal of Hannibal goes. He's always very poised. He's always, but he's very still. He's never rushed. Even when he's kind of jogging along at times, Hannibal never seems rushed. The only time I got that particular impression was when, uh, Tobias, I forget the name of, I forget the episode, but, uh, his, as far as the television series is concerned, the only other client we see besides Will Graham, the only other patient, has a friend who's also a serial killer, and he comes in and he and Hannibal wind up engaging in a fist fight. And But that sequence, kind of when he's in the act of fighting, is the only time I ever felt that he was maybe a bit, you know, not poised, kind of flustered, for want of a better phrase. But that's a very important, and it's, it's an odd trait to kind of pick up on when you're preparing for a role or acting or anything like that, but it's such an oddly important thing to the character that he's just very... His mind is always working, but his body can be quite still. He can be... He doesn't move unnecessarily. He's very poised, and it's it's something that predatory animals do, and it's a great, great trait that is an important one to how we perceive the character, I feel. If you want a slightly more modern example... Slightly more. I'm talking about Anthony Hopkins' portrayal of Hannibal Lecter, by the way. I feel a lot of that same, a lot of those same things are used in, uh, I believe, seasons three and four of Breaking Bad by Gus Fring. If we have any Breaking Bad fans, he has a lot of that same, I mean, he, a lot of the same mannerisms. He's very, whenever you see him engaged in business and talking, he's very, very still. He's very poised. He doesn't get rushed or flustered very often. And in point of fact, the way that I believe the season four opened, and fans of Breaking Bad will understand what I'm saying. He kills one of his own employees with a box cutter. He slits his throat uh, in front of Walter White and Jesse Pinkman. And that whole way that he goes about that, I'll say, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying Gus Fring is a Hannibal Lecter knockoff. That's not true at all. Because Gustavo Fring is very much his own character, and John Carlo Esposito did a phenomenal job acting as that character. It needs to be noted as well. But it's just some of these kind of subtle traits that that whole sequence when he arrives downstairs very slowly, takes off his jacket and his tie, he rolls up his sleeves, he gets into the hazmat suit, and then violently slits this guy's throat. That to me is very much a the way Hannibal Lecter might have approached that same sequence because he's very, you know, Hannibal's very into, you know, proper etiquette and looking good and things like that. So I imagine that Hannibal could very well have gone through those exact same motions in that same type of circumstance. I don't know if that was conscious on the part of the writer, director, actor even, but if you look at Gus Fring, there are certain, you know, there are those elements of him that you can point back to and are also the same in Hannibal Lecter, and it speaks a lot to his, long, not only longevity as a character, but 
the power of that particular performance that you still to this day have people you know going out copying Hannibal Lecter in a lot of ways, and and I said, Ugh. and there goes my train of thought again. But yeah, it's an interesting thing when you kind of know what to look for to see the impact that Hannibal Lecter has had across our culture. I mean, I just mentioned Gus Fring, who is again a very different character than Hannibal, but some of those same traits are still there. And I'm sure there's other examples, and if you guys have any, feel free to let me know. Uh, I'm always willing to... I I always love hearing new ideas, seeing things that I've missed, stuff like that. I I like to to continue to, you know, improve and to learn more things. I mean, if you're a fan of Craig Ferguson, he constantly does the... There was quite a running gag for a while where he talked about the Hannibal Lecter sequence in that movie. Uh, The way that that mask came about is actually another fun story as far as that movie goes. But... They found a great, you know, that mask is great. The way Anthony Hopkins brought life into Hannibal Lecter's, it remains amazing. And it's one of the things that, I don't dislike the way that Brian Cox interpreted Manhunter, which, uh, you know, I have to dislike that movie for no other reason than it gave us, it was a important precursor to television shows like CSI, because while subsequent adaptations of, well, the next adaptation of that novel and other Thomas Harris novels, they tend to focus a bit more on the psychology and the tension and the thriller and the conflicts and stuff like that. Manhunter takes a very kind of forensic approach to it. You do, they spend a lot of time discussing and looking over the forensic evidence and the forensic science in that particular movie and Actually, the lead, the man who plays Will Graham in that movie went on to be one of the stars of CSI, and that's what I, confession. I don't like CSI, like any of the variations of CSI, not my thing. And I kind of have that movie to thank for it because that was a precursor in a lot of ways to movies and television shows in that same kind of vein. And well, some good ones came out of it. Uh, I can't condone or support anything that in any way is connected, even remotely, to putting David Caruso on screen with his sunglasses and his bad one-liners and his constant posing for 8x10 glossy pictures. I'm sorry, camera whore ratio there. Anything that helped create that is just no. No, 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 no. <sighs> but enough, we're not... Uh, I don't want to talk too much about my dislike of those things. We're here to talk about Hannibal Lecter and things that I do like about him. You know, I may be wrong about this, but... I believe Hannibal Lecter had, I want to say, like eight minutes of total screen time, though it might be 15, and I'm getting it confused with my other one, because the way, the amount of time Hannibal was on screen for was shockingly low for someone who would go on to, deservedly, I, I believe, win the Oscar for Best Actor. I mean, it was, and I bring that up because the same situation came up a few years ago now with the movie The Last King of Scotland, starring James McAvoy and Forrest Whitaker. And Forrest Whitaker played a Ugandan, former Ugandan dictator Idi Amin and had the same kind of deal. He was on screen for, I believe, less than 10 minutes, I want to say, with Forrest Whitaker. I mean, I, again, my numbers may be off on that, but this really short amount of time, but still such a phenomenal acting job. And that particular, I believe that particular thought process, because if you, I believe the director's intention there was, as with other directors, in specifically Michael Mann, uh, he's significant in Manhunter. He significantly reduced the amount of time that Hannibal Lecter was on screen because he, and I believe he said it was because he felt it was such a charismatic and 
intense character and performance that he wanted to leave the audience wanting more. He wanted it to feel like they hadn't got enough. So you you take you have these really intense, really enthralling characters like Hannibal Lecter and like the way Forrest Whitaker portrayed Edie Amin. And you can't have them on screen for too long because it can almost become overwhelming. And, you know, a, a less is more kind of philosophy applies there and is very successful in you know, those movies. Those are very, you know, they're strong acting performances. They're strong movies by and large. And you you can't take up the screen the whole time with someone like Hannibal Lecter. It just it loses some of the impact. And it can be... And at the same time, you don't know, lose some of the impact. In some cases, it can become a bit overwhelming. To just you need, you know, to take a deep breath to come up for air every now and. And you know, again, when you look at some of the no, the novels and the movies that focus more on Hannibal, they kind of suffer, and that's part of the reason. Is you know, there's it's odd to hear me say this because I'm such a huge you know villain fan and everything, but there's almost too much Hannibal Lecter. And as far as you know. Just pacing it and everything, you need so much more than just you know, having those breaks between seeing the character, between being involved with something like that, someone that intense and that enthralling. It's an it's an important part of that, and I don't think there's a much more intense, enthralling, seductive in a way character than Hannibal Lecter, and that goes across all forms. I mean, the the lone except the lone turkey, the lemon in this list is kind of Hannibal Rising. There's a lot wrong with that and there's a few reasons for it i don't want to get too much into that because i don't know hey maybe i'll pitch you know the long uh, maybe i'll pitch a long road to ruin series looking at the uh the thomas harris novel adaptation i have to take it up with mark radlich we'll see well uh, i ran over sounds like me all right i want to thank you guys for listening to this for coming along with me on a solo podcast looking at one of my all-time favorite characters hannibal uh, when I started this podcast, I mentioned that one of the first villains I really liked, I really kind of f- fell in love with, for want of a better phrase, was Scar from The Lion King. Well, another one when I was again, a teenager and whatnot, Hannibal Lecter is just enthralling in so many ways. He's such a huge, he's one of the villains that you kind of can't get enough of when done properly. And he was a he was a big part of my enjoyment of villains, of well-written, intriguing, interesting villains. And Thomas Harris for creating him, like I said, my first exposure was on Silence, so Thomas Harris for creating the character, Ted Tolley for writing the character so well, Jonathan Demme for directing it, and of course Anthony Hopkins for creating such a vivid and memorable portrayal of the character. Just amazing. And that is going to do it for this edition of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. You know, I need some kind of soundbite to take me out of. This. I will find that. You know, next time I come back and do it, I'll have one of these next week. I'm not quite sure on who yet, that or who or what that is up in the air at the moment. But I'll be back next week, and I will have some kind of sound clip or song or something that will take me out of this. I feel I need it. I don't know. I'd like one. But since it's just me, if you're listening to this live or within a couple of days after it was recorded, I do need to plug my column on 411 Mania in the MMA Zone every Friday, Locked in the Guillotine. comes out in the MMA Zone. It's uh, technically a news report, so you'll find it under that section. Uh, this week, I will be breaking down the main card of UFC 162, including the upcoming decimation of Chris Weidman by Anderson Silva. Uh, you can also catch me every Sunday at... 9 p.m. Eastern Time on the 411 Ground and Pound radio show. Uh, we get together, we talk MMA, there's four of us, give or take, and we have a good time. 
since it's his account, I need to plug the guy whose account this is, Mr. Mark Radulich. He just completed his on this account a career retrospective of Megadeth, if you're into metal music. It's in the 411 Mania Music Zone. He and his special guest, Robert Cooper, have gone over the career of Megadeth to this point. I don't know if they've done the new Super Collider album yet, but they have done everything up until that point for sure. Uh, he will also have The Long Road to Ruin. Uh, he already did, I believe he just did The Long Road to Ruin, the Jurassic Park trilo- trilogy yesterday. So if you're interested in hearing, The Long Road to Ruin is a great ongoing series of podcasts looking at movie franchises, if you're not aware of what it is. And he has an upcoming one in two weeks. I believe he's looking at Twilight in two weeks. He got his wife to come on and do one with him and his regular co-host. Yeah, that's because uh, next week he'll be reviewing Super Collider with Robert Cooper. Hey, I'm plugging everybody else's stuff. Because I don't have too much going on. But that does it for me. And you know what? I will leave you with the same soundbite that I brought you in with. It's Hannibal Lecter staring right through Clarice Starling and poking at all of her exposed nerves just to see the kind of reaction. I will see you next time, folks. Just remember, the light is only bright because the darkness allows it to be so. So whenever something bad happens to you, just remember it's to make the good things that much sweeter. Have a good night. You know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a robe, a well-scrubbed, hustling robe with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor wire trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. Where's your father, dear? Is he a coal miner? Is he a stinkable land? You know how quickly the boys found you, all those tedious, sticky fumblings in the backseats of cars while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere.